Welcome to the Beehive Capital Show. I'm Douglas Abusu. As always, I'm here with the Beehive Capital Management Team. On the Beehive Capital Show, we provide a medium for the startup ecosystem's most respected and trusted leaders to share their insight so entrepreneurs and investors can flourish, even during these trying times. Stephanie Chu joins us today. She is a partner and head of investments at Portage Ventures, a global fintech-focused VC firm investing at Seed, Series A, and Series B. Prior to Portage, Steph led a team which built and launched a leading wealth management platform in Canada. Steph, welcome to the Beehive Capital Podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm glad that we're able to have this conversation here today. Portage Ventures is doing great things in the ecosystem, have made great investments, and I'm curious to hear your role as partner head of investments at Portage. What does that entail, or could you explain your role? Yeah, so I am very lucky to have a job where my role is essentially to find and support the best fintech entrepreneurs who ideally are changing the face of financial services. So practically, that means I spend a lot of time meeting founders, talking about their business with them, and then hopefully eventually making an investment or a set of investments. After we invest, I think we're really hands-on investors. So we're typically sitting on boards and supporting our companies in whatever way we can. So I think about the job as being three main elements to it, all in service, obviously, of our entrepreneurs. The three main elements of the venture job are sourcing, which is widely defined as kind of finding great companies to invest in, diligence, which is really the process of getting to know a team and a founder and a business and a market and deciding where we want to put capital. And then afterwards... The longest and most important part of what we do, I think, is supporting our entrepreneurs afterwards, which we do in a couple of different ways. We've got a deep bench of operators, which I'm happy to chat more about, but we will also, as I said, sit on boards. And that's kind of post-investment value creation, not to use too many buzzwords. (laughs) Yeah. And actually speaking on the supporting entrepreneurs, this is something I would definitely love to get into because it seems that Portage has also brought on, I believe, six extremely high caliber advisors to support the portfolio companies, correct? Yeah. And I'm happy to chat more about that. But I think one of our big differentiators is we've invested quite a bit into what we call value creation team, where we've got really, really, I think, impressive, not to toot our own horns too much, but in their own right, vertical experts who are domain-specific, who have been there and done that. We've got Jonathan Metric, our CMO. We've got Chris Hansen, our CTO. We've got Joseph Lau, our head of cybersecurity. Brendan Callahan, who's our head of B2B sales. And the goal there is that where relevant and where helpful, these vertical experts can really spend time with our portfolio companies and they can work shoulder to shoulder with them. All of these experts have been operators themselves in each of their respective fields, and they can bring real-world insight, advice, 
and often quite tactical support as well. So it's a model that has existed, I think, in other asset classes. I think more and more we're seeing this in venture, but I think it's a way for us to accelerate the progress of some of our early stage companies by adding a couple pairs of hands or at least a couple of sets of eyes for people to look at their plans and often actually spend reasonable time with our founders, not only just our founders, but also their respective teams as well. So it's, I think, a big differentiator for us in the market. I couldn't agree more. I personally have this saying that you listen to or you should listen to people that have been where you are and are where you want to be. And given that the Valley Creation team is filled with vertical experts that have been there and done that, it would seem that they're much more able to resonate with the pains and challenges at the different steps of a venture's life cycle. Yeah, for sure. I think being able to have the muscle memory of either having institutionalized processes at other organizations or having seen the challenges of scaling before uh, in a different context, I think they're able to really share learnings and insights that hopefully are valuable to our founders, who, by the way, in our own right, many of whom are multiple-time entrepreneurs themselves. But I think in certain situations, it can be helpful to get a second pair of eyes. Now, Yourself, prior to Portage, what were you engaged in? So before Portage, I did a few different things. I was at a payment startup. And then after that, I worked in the financial services group at a consulting company called BCG. And then afterwards, I transitioned to a role at a wholly owned subsidiary of BCG called Digital Ventures, where we helped kind of large corporates scale new venture businesses. And I worked on helping to launch a digital wealth management platform here in Canada, which is now one of the largest, I guess, digital first platforms from a customer perspective in the wealth space. So I've been through and through kind of the last decade. I've spent it on the intersection of financial services, fintech, and yet have continued that path here at Portage. Beautiful. Now, speaking further into Portage, as a firm and as a fund, I'm curious to hear what the philosophy of the fund is, as well as you've spoken on it a bit, but also the core value add that you believe Portage really brings to the portfolio companies. Yeah, there's a few different things that bake into an investment philosophy. So I think overall, our vision is really that we want to empower and invest in the next generation of financial services entrepreneurs. And from a strategy perspective, we're really investing seed, Series A, opportunistically looking also at Series B. Our typical sweet spot is really 5 to $10 million checks will write. Smaller checks will write bigger checks, but I think our sweet spot's really 5 10 or five, five to 15 million, we're typically looking to lead at the Series A stage. We're typically looking for a double-digit ownership stake in the companies that we invest in because we really, as I will talk more about in the value add, we really like to roll up our sleeves and get involved. We want to make sure that we've got a concentrated portfolio that because we are so involved in the companies that we invest in. And that's, I think, really part of our core philosophy is we try to be more than capital. And 
So when it comes to our differentiation, I think there are three things that really differentiate us. The first is that we are really fintech specific and really focused on what we do. And so within fintech, we've got a set of verticals that I would say are our core verticals that I'm happy to chat more about, but we're very specific in what we do, but we're very global in how we invest. So venture, although this is changing, it's typically been quite a local game. And I think we're very, very focused in the verticals and specific area that we invest in, i.e. fintech. And even within fintech, we've got specific theses that we like, but we are global in how we invest. So our five core markets are Canada, the US, the UK, France, and Germany, but we're increasingly looking at investments in other markets like LATAM. And we also have a venture partner in Asia. So we've got a lens there as well. And I think Although we believe financial services is also a very geography-specific type of industry, especially with all the regulatory oversight that's required, we think there are a lot of learnings that can be transferred across geographies. So I think that's one part of our differentiation is that we are very specific in what we look at in terms of fintech. So we really, I think, understand how to scale financial services businesses, but we are wide in the geography that we look at and very global. And I think we can share a lot of insights across geographies. The second part of our differentiation I've already talked about, which is our team of vertical experts that we can really deploy to our portfolio companies where it's relevant. Uh, And the third thing that I haven't yet talked about is our wide network. And I think our network manifests in a couple of different ways. We've got a set of really great institutional LPs that are kind of more financially focused LPs like pensions, but we also have a group of corporate LPs. And that is a kind of global group of insurance companies and wealth management companies and banks and asset managers. And where we can, we've got a group of folks who lead our partnership and policy team who are incredibly instrumental in bringing the power of our network to bear because where we can, we try to connect our LPs with our fintech portfolio to create partnerships. And across the life cycle of fund one and fund two, we've created 40 plus partnerships. They can be commercial partnerships, uh, distribution partnerships, product partnerships. And I think they really help to accelerate the value that our portfolio companies and our LPs have seen on both sides. So I think it's a really core part of our value proposition that we can do more than just make an introduction, although certainly we can do that even more widely than our LP community, but we can also really help facilitate commercial contracts and commercial partnerships that are win-win on both sides. And then as I alluded to more widely than our LP network, we have spent a lot of time with the wider kind of Fortune 500 community of financial services corporates, I think it's a little bit easier for us to build deep relationships because again, we're very sector specific. So to this point of trying to be more than capital for our entrepreneurs, I think where it's helpful to them, we really try to make the right introductions to the right companies, whether it be within our LP base or to a wider kind of corporate network. Excellent. And I do definitely see the more value than capital given the wide geography focus and yet very specific vertical. Now, speaking in terms of trends that may be observed and 
specifically into observations into the ecosystem that you may have gained at this point. I'm curious to hear how would you contrast fintech sentiment prior to COVID versus post-COVID? So I would say, look, like all of our B2C companies in our portfolio, Wealthsimple, Coho, Albert, have seen an amazing tailwind from COVID. And I think it's pretty obvious why in a world in which you can't go to a bank branch or to go see your advisor, you need to be able to interact with your money in a digital way. And I think where it's really, I think, massively accelerated the need for digital financial services. And I think we're seeing that reflected in market conditions and in VC interest in fintech. We're also seeing that reflected very clearly in consumer interest in fintech. And I think if it wasn't already obvious that this is the way that the world is moving and that people want to interact with their money in a seamless, contextually relevant way, like where they are, when they want to, without any friction, those were already trends that we were seeing pre-COVID. I think what COVID has done, it hasn't necessarily changed that, but it's really accelerated it. Mm -hmm. And where we might have seen adoption and switching behavior take several years, we're now seeing in the course of several months. And I think all of our B2C companies, including in the insurance space, so our B2C company, Clark, which is the largest broker in Germany, is also seeing really great tailwinds from this. And Dialogue, which is our telemedicine company, is also seeing tailwinds from COVID. Obviously, if you can avoid going into a hospital or a doctor's office, and by the way, a lot of visits can actually be done virtually, it helps, I think, from a strain perspective on the system, and it opens up new healthcare capacity for the country as well, which plays kind of to a double kind of positive in terms of impact. So I think we're really seeing on the B2C side a pretty significant tailwind post-COVID. If I look at my portfolio on the B2B side, I think it's on a case-by-case basis. We're seeing some companies with really good tailwinds because there's clearly an acceleration in the need to automate and the need to make sure that if you're selling into a bank and your product is about digitization, I think you have very quickly moved from being kind of like priority number nine or 10 to priority number one. If you are selling a security product, you're like, I think that's also been post COVID pretty high on the list of priorities. But I think there's other companies that I think are seeing a lengthening of their sales cycle on the B2B side, because it's just a lot of the tactics that you would have used prior to COVID like conferences, like in-person meetings, like relationship building, those sales channels are just not available to you. So on the B2B side, I think it's been more of a mixed bag in the fintech enabler space. But on the B2C side, we've seen really positive momentum in fintech. And it's been reflected not only in customer numbers, but also in the kind of investor interest in the market. Super interesting. And with that said, What are a few behavioral trends that you've noted that are essentially at the core of this? Yeah, and I've talked about one of them already. I think one of the things that we're big believers of, and we're not alone in this, 
is that consumers really want to interact with their financial services, with their money, in context, where they are, where it's relevant. And I think we're seeing this trend really come to the fore in multiple ways. So we're seeing more and more integration of financial services in products that we already use. So Facebook is allowing you to pay in WhatsApp. Natively, you can move money within WhatsApp. Apple Pay is a great example of this. We already have our devices with us at all times. There's no reason why we need to use another intermediary to pay at a checkout. I think being able to pay in-app for our food when we go out to restaurants to go eat because we don't need another touch point with the server is another kind of like obvious example of where this behavior post-COVID really manifests. So we're seeing this kind of like contextual financial services very obviously is a trend and it's part of the reason why I think we're seeing more and more that this seamless, frictionless financial services flow, which is really embedded very deeply in whatever it is that you're already doing, is clearly a trend both on the payment side, but also even in investing. So when I'm reading an article about Tesla, I should be able to, if I want to, make a trade right away on the site from a one-click perspective, make a trade if that's what I want to do. I think like the idea of financial services in context, I think applies to a bunch of different verticals. I think it starts with the payment space, but I think it manifests in three things, which is one, like when I think about this as an investor, I really want to be where the customers are. So that means adding value and solving a pain point for the end customer, whether that end customer is looking to buy a house or is a logistics company looking for new ERP or whether it's a coffee shop that's looking to be able to manage its inventory properly or have a proper way to interact with its customers. I think that there's a software layer that serves a pain point for a specific customer base. And like I think we're seeing this trend that the financial services products really get embedded into another piece of software that really helps solve a main pain point. And I think that means that when we invest, I think we have to look more widely than just the actual fintech, but we have to be where the customers are. So like this idea of really investing in a really good APIs that bridge the communities of where the customers interact with and where they are, where a software layer can solve a pain point and where the embedded financial services can actually be embedded via APIs. So to summarize really quickly, I think both consumers and businesses and different kinds of communities want to interact with financial services in context. I think more and more we're seeing financial services embedded into these different contexts. So when we invest, we're looking both for the set of APIs that are going to allow and facilitate financial services to be embedded in context, but also more widely at software that solves specific pain points where we might see a monetization layer via fintech or just a frictionless financial services layer that's already embedded in whatever piece of software that either a business or a consumer is using already. 
Now, speaking further into that, as a perfect example, right, there's on the B2C side, this significant tailwind that has come from the entire COVID situation. And then the aspect of companies embedding financial products into their core user experience, coupled with the expectation on the consumer side for things to be more simplistic for them. As an example, Shopify and Amazon are layering in business lending into their core offering, right? And so with embedding such as this that is currently happening and continuously progressing into more and more technology companies, the question is, what are the implications for banking institutions as this phenomena or this activity continues to progress from a delighter feature, which is something new and novel that exceeds the end customer's expectations to something that is a must-have and is actually expected from these technology companies in ensuring that the offer or the service is competitive and convenient compared to the other software companies that are in the market? It's a good question. So I think there's a few implications for kind of banking institutions and traditional incumbents. So one is you don't have to own the end customer. There are a whole bunch of, again, not to use this term too much because like every, the implication of this, by the way, is that everybody's like, everything is fintech. I actually don't think that's true. Not everything is fintech, but you do not need to own the end customer, I think is one big implication. And there may be other platforms that are better suited to handle distribution. So if I think about it, it's kind of like, the Uber situation is a perfect example, which is Uber is now launching like a set of financial services products. And like Facebook is now launching a set of financial services products. And Google is now launching a set of financial services products. But I think there's a lot of companies that are really great at solving the specific pain point for their customer, i.e. Uber has this amazing way and they built this amazing platform I think obviously with some of their current issues notwithstanding, but like Uber and Airbnb have enabled this whole new way to make money for a specific demographic. And they've aggregated this community of millions of people onto their platform. But does it make sense for them to build an entire financial services set of products? Does it make sense for them to go and get a banking charter or an insurance license and develop their own insurance products, which by the way, their drivers might need or design their own banking products. Actually, you know what? Probably not. It's a lot of regulatory overhead and a lot of additional expertise that they don't have today. They solve this one specific pain point or a set of specific pain points for their customer base, which I think is amazing, but financial services is not necessarily what they do. So I think the implication for the financial institution is if People want to interact with financial services where they are already, and there are a bunch of other software companies that solve specific problems for specific communities extremely well, like Google is an amazing search engine, and trying to replicate and build a search engine really makes zero sense. You'll never be able to really do that. And similarly, I know a lot of banks are trying to build kind of like this idea of saying, you know what, like we want to sell more mortgages. Let's go out and try to build a front end to capture people in the beginning of their journey and really try to compete with some of the real estate brokers to help people find homes so that we can capture their mortgage. Like I'm actually not super bullish on a financial service incumbent 
ability to move further up the chain and try to solve other pain points. But I really do think incumbents do something really valuable, which is they understand the core function of how to work with regulators. They have licenses. They have protected regulatory moats in many ways. But you don't need to own the end customer. But at the same time, I think the platforms that own the end customers don't necessarily need to become banks and insurance companies themselves. They don't have the expertise in many cases to do it. And I think in many cases, they don't want to do it because it's a lot of additional regulatory requirements and a lot of additional capital requirements and a lot of additional expertise. So I think finding a way to bridge the two means you need to have really strong APIs and be willing to partner and work with other platforms, which may mean you don't own the end customer at the end of the day. So I think that's one big implication is partnering with existing distribution or new distribution channels to try to get to the customer, which means you need to build out a proper API suite in order to be embedded. So that's one. And I think the other implication is if you do want to own the end customer, I think your experience needs to be pretty seamless. And I think there is still room and there are a lot of new B2C platforms. I think Chime, they just announced this week as the most valuable B2C fintech in the world. Robinhood, I think, well, Simple is a great example of this as well. And Coho, there are lots of great examples of companies that are providing really amazing digital experiences that rival the experiences that you're used to when you open Uber Eats and you order something instantly or when you use Gmail or email or what have you or WeChat. And I think that's the kind of experience that if you are going to own the end customer experience, you have to be able to compete. So those would be the implications I would say that incumbents need to think about for the next generation. Very interesting. Again, there's a few aspects that overlap into each other. So given one that technology companies face regulatory and expertise challenges in providing a full suite of financial products, and two, technology companies continue to become more niche in value offered to their and customers, this leads to the assumption that as time progresses, there will be more technology companies that are each offering very niche and specific financial products to their end customers. And with this said, there are certain companies in the market, such as Played, that are offering financial infrastructure that are accelerating this trend. And so with that said, I'm curious to know what you believe are high growth opportunities going forward or high perceived Mm. value opportunities by incumbents given these trends that are taking place? Yeah, so I've kind of alluded to them already, but I think infrastructure layer APIs that connect traditional banking institutions with new communities or platforms, whatever you want to call them, the software layer that actually speaks and solves pain points. So that's one area that I think is a really interesting opportunity. So there's a set of APIs where the core customer is the actual bank or institution. I think that's kind of like one area. Like we were originally investors in a company called Quovo, which got acquired by Plaid. 
So that's part of our thesis in this space. We've got an investment in a company called Alpaca, which is trading and investing APIs. Again, it's the idea that there's a whole set of new financial infrastructure that is going to be required in order to embed financial services into other platforms. So I think we're spending a lot of time in the payment space as well. And I think that's one kind of opportunity. I think the second opportunity is in owning the full vertical stack. So if software layers that target specific segments are really how you get customer acquisition costs down in fintech, because you want to be able to provide something in context that is hyper-targeted, I think this idea of software focused on very specific verticals. So if you think about it, like the most obvious example of this is a POS system that's focused on a specific segment. So in the same way that Square was focused in on restaurants or cafes, I think you can go and find POS software in the payment space that monetizes via both a SaaS fee and a payments layer that's focused on specific verticals. So it could be like the healthcare verticals, but even more specific than that, POS systems that solve the needs for dentists or for dermatologists or for speech therapists. And the trick to each of these vertical specific opportunities is to find verticals that are, of course, big enough that you can sell a full suite of or monetize via a full suite of financial services companies. But I think that we're big believers in both the horizontal layer of APIs that sell to either incumbents that allow you to embed financial services within like large distribution platforms that exist already, or really hyper-targeted, verticalized financial services approach where you can sell a bundle of specific goods, insurance, lending, banking services to specific segments. So you can imagine a world in which you're creating the financial services suite for cannabis companies or for gaming companies or for healthcare professionals. So I think there's opportunities in both strategies. Excellent. And then essentially to close, given the trends, the opportunities that you've just discussed, the tailwind in terms of the B2C side, given the whole COVID situation and the challenges that many ecosystem players have experienced, what do you feel most excited about going forward? As a comment, I have this belief that within every temporary defeat, there's a seed of equivalent or greater benefit that can be obtained, right? And it's this belief where no matter what you go through, there are lessons learned that can help take you further. So when you combine all of these together, what do you feel most excited about in terms of the outlook going forward? I think we're seeing a really generational shift in how people think about interacting with their money. And I'm pretty excited to see how that plays out going forward. I think one of the big trends that I haven't talked about that people have been talking about for the last, I don't know, five years, but really has not manifested at all is this idea of the great quote unquote rebundling. So there are all of these apps in your phone and people are kind of tired of using multiple apps. And I think we're seeing this in Asia already where you have the advent of these super apps um, Mm. where you're consolidating the kind of relationships that you have instead of interacting across multiple apps, you're you're really looking to use one or two. It's kind of app fatigue and this idea that like 
in the traditional banking world, out of convenience, you'll just go to one place and you get your mortgage from this one place and you might trade there, you might get a loan there, you might get a credit card there, you might get like this idea that you'll have the rebundling of financial services has not really happened over the last five years. You haven't really seen many examples of this in the fintech space. And I think we're just starting to see that now in our companies like Albert has launched a set of holistic financial services products, again, that are targeted to their specific segment. Well, Simple has launched several different financial services products. Coho has launched several different financial services products. And we're now just at the beginning, I think, of what people have been calling for for the past five years of seeing the new set of financial services companies be able to sell multiple products and or to put it from the consumer perspective, where a consumer really believes that they want different products from the same app or from the same brand or from the same business. And I think that trend will continue to expand, but it's really predicated on actually providing custom products and very personalized products for people and it goes back to this trend that we were talking about earlier, which is really about being able to use technology and being able to be segmented and personalized. And I think that is ultimately going to drive this trend towards rebundling that and like trust and brand loyalty. But really, I think it's about understanding your customer base and providing that hyper-targeted set of products that you know that they want. Excellent. Well, stuff that actually covers the majority of topics I would have loved to discuss. I truly appreciate the time and I loved the discussion. Thanks. Thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun. Excellent. We'll talk soon. Bye-bye. All right. Cheers. Thanks for joining us on the Beehive Capital Podcast. We hope this sparked new ideas, aha moments, or raise your spirits during these trying times. If you want to trigger more aha moments to expedite your maturation within the innovation ecosystem, then sign up to our newsletter called Hive People. Go to hivepl.vc and sign up to learn more about the relationships and expectations of key stakeholders today.